The Gospel of Luke. Luke investigated many of the earliest eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus and then composed this account. And the story begins up in the hills of Jerusalem, the place where Israel's ancient prophets said that God himself would come one day to establish his kingdom over all the earth. In the city is the temple run by the priests. And one of them, named Zechariah, was working in the temple when he had a vision that freaks him out. An angel appears and says that he and his wife will have a son. What's this all about? Well, Zechariah and his wife, we're told, are very old. They've never been able to have children. And Luke's setting up a parallel here with Abraham and Sarah, the great ancestors of Israel, because they too were very old and could never have kids. Yet God gave them a son, Isaac, which is how the whole story of Israel began. And so Luke's implying here that God's about to do something that significant for this people once again. The angel tells Zechariah to name the son John. And then he says that this son's going to fulfill a promise of Israel's ancient prophets, that somebody would come one day to prepare Israel to meet their God when he arrived to rule in Jerusalem. Because right now, Jerusalem is ruled by the Romans. Yeah, specifically, it's governed by a man named Herod, who's a puppet king under the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish people wanted nothing more than to be free and govern themselves in their own land. So this is shocking news. Everything's going to change. God's on his way. But how is he going to arrive? Well, to find out, Luke takes us out of Jerusalem and then up into a small town in the hills of an out-of-the-way region called Galilee. There we find a young woman named Mariam, or we call her Mary. She was engaged to be married. And then an angel appears to Mary, saying that she's going to have a son. She's supposed to name him Jesus, which in Hebrew means the Lord saves. And he will be a king like David, who will rule over God's people forever. And then Mary asks, okay, well, how is this possible? Because... I'm a virgin. And she's told that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1 is going to generate life inside her womb. God is about to bind himself to humanity through the conception and the birth of the Messiah. And so Mary goes from some backwoods no-name girl to the future mother of the king? Exactly. In fact, she sings a song about how this reversal of her own social status points to a greater upheaval to come. Through her son, God's going to bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the poor and the humble. He's going to turn the whole world order upside down. So when Mary was really pregnant, she and her fiancé, Joseph, had to go down to Bethlehem. Yeah, there was a decree across the Roman Empire about new taxes, and so everybody had to go get registered in the town of their family line. There were so many visitors in Bethlehem, they can't find a guest room. And so the only place they can find is a spot where animals sleep. Now nearby were some shepherds with their flocks, and an angel appears, which, of course, freaks them out. But they're told to celebrate, because tonight in Bethlehem, a savior has been born. Yeah, they're told to go and find this baby, and they'll know that it's the Messiah, because he's going to be wrapped up and laying in a grimy feeding trough. Yeah, which is pretty gross. Totally. And then these shepherds, who aren't very clean themselves, they go and find the newborn Jesus in this really dingy place, and their minds are blown. They go home wondering what on earth is about to happen. And this is all really strange. I mean, if God's really coming to save the world, this isn't how you would expect him to arrive, born in an animal shelter 
shelter to a teenage girl celebrated by no-name shepherds. Exactly. I mean, everything is backwards in Luke's story, and that's the point. He is showing how God's kingdom was first revealed in these dirty places among the poor because Jesus is here to bring salvation by turning our world order upside down. One of the things that's beautiful about the story of Jesus is that there's a lot of different ways in which you can approach thinking about it, looking at it from a variety of different angles. For example, you can look at it from the angle of the shepherds, who were these unworthy fringe characters out off in the wilderness, kind of uh, un- insignificant, unknown people, but they were the ones that were honored by being the first to actually see the star and to be brought into the actual birth of Jesus. You could look at it through the story of what we would call the astrologers. Some of you would describe them as the wise men. They actually come about two years later. I've oftentimes said this in the past. If you have a manger scene in your house and you have the wise men there, you can take them and throw them out in your backyard really far away because that's where they're still at during the time of Jesus' birth. They're really far away. They don't even come around until about two years later. Um, but again, myths become reality, and that's the fact. But the point is, is that these guys actually were Babylonian astrologers. They lived in the ancient city of either Babylon or Iran, one of the ancient Persian areas in that neck of the woods, and they studied the stars. They looked at and read what was happening within nature. So in other words, they would have been the people that would have relied upon science or reason or intellect. And yet through this, by time, by way of time, by way of God's grace, they became aware of who the king was. God shows them his kindness. Or you could look at this with the story of Mary, who though she was uh, bearing this cultural shame because she was uh, pregnant as a young woman originally outside of the bonds of marriage, she took upon herself and sensed this, uh, also bearing within her own physical body the pain that took place by way of birth pangs as well as the birth. She became the one that had rejoiced to see the king. That was one that was honored to receive the very gift of God's presence first and foremost. She was honored, greatly honored above all women, scripture teaches. But what I want to look at here today is really kind of think about the idea of Jesus coming in this world through the eyes of God the Father. Uh, and what we're told is that God himself actually sends Jesus into this world. Imagine being a father and sending your son away on a mission someplace that you know they will become ultimately extremely vulnerable and subject to all forms of mockery and shame and pain and taking upon themselves other people's pain and hardships and difficulties, knowing that it's going to be a, a very costly venture for them. This is exactly what the Father does. God loves this world, we're told in the book of John, so much that he actually sends Jesus on this mission. There's two passages that I really want for us to just look at here tonight and just think about. Um, if you want, you can open up in your Bibles to two little spots, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. If not, they're just going to be up on the screen. I'm going to just make reference to them. Um, so the first of which is Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It says this, God has come to seek and save the lost. Number one, God has come to seek and save the lost. Uh, the second passage is out of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, where he tells us this, that Jesus comes into this world, and he's full of 
grace and truth. He comes with this message. He comes with this reality. He comes with this posture. So if you want to think of it this way, we're going to look at the what of what Jesus has come to do. In other words, his mission. And then we'll take a look at the how. In other words, the posture. What was the posture that Jesus came bearing in this world in order to seek and save the lost? The first big idea is this concept of the mission or the what. That he comes to seek and save the lost. If you've ever heard someone in your life, whether or not either you have said this or someone else that you know have said things like this, uh, where they would say something along these lines, I'm just putting it out there into the universe, right? Just speaking out there into the universe as if somehow the universe has ears and listens or even that the universe even cares about you. But again, this is oftentimes language that gets utilized today. Or what about this one? I believe everything happens for a purpose or for a reason. In other words, as if there's some sort of benevolent force or agent behind drama or pain or hardship or difficulties or challenges that you find within your life. Each of these phrases can actually come, for the most part, from people that don't even believe in God. And oftentimes this is where they're rooted. People who believe in God, I think, have a little bit of a different angle of uh, perspective on these particular um, phrases. But the big idea, I think, what these are, they become clues of a secret longing, I think, that there is a deep desire for there to be a sense of purpose and meaning to our lives. In other words, you and I living on this planet, going through various forms of pain and hardship and difficulty and challenges, we cannot really live apart from an understanding of meaning and value and purpose. If we lose a sense of meaning, value, and purpose, then we lose a sense of the will to live. It's the two two go hand in hand. This is the way it oftentimes works. But these are clues that oftentimes there's something happening in our lives that we are either far from home and we're longing to be brought home, um, but we have this desire. It's one of the reasons why I think in this even season of the year that Christmas can be really painful for people because it's a reminder. It's an ache of something that once was but now is currently not, and it's this reminder, this the reminder of the ache, of the longing that's there, that's unfulfilled. It's one of the reasons why it can be very hard for many people this time of year. Because we have a longing for a sense of what I would just simply describe to be home. A homecoming. The place where we can just simply hang our hat, where we can kick up our feet, where we can be loved and accepted and known to be home, to be found, to be seen, to be known, to be loved. This is what we long for. And when these things are absent, we're not okay with our life. We do everything we can to either ignore it or to medicate it away or to drown out our sorrows in a variety of different means in which the culture just constantly keeps gladly giving us on repeat over and over and over again. And yet the real heart of the matter is that we have a longing to be found. It's exactly what God said of Jesus, that I've sent my son to seek and save the lost. And this kind of plays into the second thing, which is this idea of the posture. In other words, how does God come into this world? What, what, would, what would God say as God stands, uh, steps in this world? Because this is what Christmas is all about. We celebrate the fact that God has come into this world. He's not remote. He's not distant. He's not far off. He's not just simply throwing out platitudes for us to live by. He's not just throwing down laws and rules and regulations for us to somehow to meticulously follow and observe. He actually steps into his own story. That's what this whole thing is all about. But what would God say if he were to come 
And as Christians, we believe he did come. And what did he actually say? This is where John tells us. He comes into this world, Jesus does, manifests himself, takes upon flesh and blood, and he comes in the fullness of grace and truth. The fullness of grace and truth. What I love about this is that first and foremost, this idea of truth, that Jesus comes speaking truth. He is not holding back his perspective, his opinion, his, his understanding, his judgment, if you would, upon the condition of human hearts. He knows the true status where you and I are at. And we need this. Now, on one hand, as a culture, we don't like this. We bristle against this. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told the state of our condition. It's one of the reasons why we avoid going to the doctor for as long as we can or avoid going to the dentist, which, by the way, I went to the dentist this past month, and it was not good. I'll just leave it at that. It was not good. But the point of the matter is, it's like I did it. I faced it. It was not what I wanted to. I put it off long enough, but I had to at some point come face to face with my dentist and let them speak truth to my face, even though I couldn't respond because my mouth is filled with stuff. But the point of the matter is that was painful for me, but I had to face it if I really wanted to get better. Or I could just keep going on living in denial and lose all my teeth in my mouth and things are going to get bad and cost me even more money than what it's already costed me. But the point of the matter, I digress, is that we have to face truth. And this is what Jesus comes. He comes bringing truth. But it's not all he comes bringing. He's not coming to just simply tell us the state of humanity. In other words, he's not just interested in showing you in me, our guilt, our shame, our re- things that cause us regret, and putting our face in our dirt, that's not his posture, because his posture is also one of grace. He comes with grace, with kindness, with goodness. This is the posture that he, ch- he comes bringing. Yes, truth, but also accompanied by grace. And again, we live in a culture that, to some degree, even though we try to avoid truth, especially when truth is focused upon us, we don't really want to hear the truth, we are glad to tell the truth about other people. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? We don't have any problem pointing out the truth about other people and their flaws and their problems and their idiosyncrasies and the things that annoy us about them. We don't have any problem with that. But that's where the distinction comes between us and Jesus is because we're, we usually don't do that with grace. We usually don't do that with an aim of reconciliation. How can I save my truth or the truth that's there, that's obvious, that's causing the problems between our relationship so that we can then get back on with the matter of relationship and love and connectivity. This is the way that God works, though. This is the posture of God, fullness of truth as well as grace. This is what Christmas is all about. This is one of the reasons why, for example, in John Wesley's great hymn, he says, Hark the herald angels sing. And he goes on to say, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. God's big aim, longing, desire is to bring reconciliation. All of us, at some point in our life, we have felt that ache of having a relationship not in the right state. We've all felt that. Everything else could be going great in our lives. You could have lots of money in the bank. You could have a nice car. You can have the latest iPhone. Everything else is going great in your life. But if that relationship is somehow marred or soiled or broken or strained, the world's not right. Jesus comes and he says the big issue with humanity right now, the big E on the I chart, 
is that there is not reconciliation between humans and God. There's an issue of sin, rebellion. We've gone our own way. We've chosen to take our own path. We've chosen to disregard God. We've chosen to say that we know what's right for our lives, and therefore we will walk in a pathway that's suitable to us, and yet that has caused a, dis, a, a brokenness between us and God. And yet because God loves us so much, he sends Jesus into this world to do something about that lost state that you and I feel. Do you know that that's almost exactly what hell is? When we talk about hell, the scripture talks about hell. Of course, it refers to a state in the future. But the point that I would make ultimately, really it's about this, the very kernel, the nugget of all of it, is that hell is constant perennial state of exile. Or to put it in the words of C.S. Lewis, it's always uh, winter but never Christmas. Always restless, never a state of peace, never a state of shalom, never a state of reconciliation, never a state of where relationships are healed. This is what heaven is. Heaven is God saying, I've come into this world to do something about the disunity, the brokenness, the rebellion that's been there, and to take it upon myself, the consequences that are there in order to bring about a life of healing and wholeness so that you can be set free so that you could have a place at the table. In other words, to put it this way, so that you who are lost can be found. So in conclusion, what I want to do as we wrap things up, I'm going to have Dan come on up and he's going to lead us in another song in closing. We're going to do a confession of our faith and we're going to be lighting some candles so you can go ahead and grab out those candles right now or at least get them ready, but don't turn them on yet. But before we do that, what I want for us to do is something that, especially if you've been a part of our men's group, you know this. This is a familiar drill to you. We do this all the time. Uh, we confess our faith. And this is one of the beautiful things is that there's certain things that we believe about God. And this is what the Apostles' Creed basically crystallizes or synthesizes in terms of what we commonly believe. You know, a lot of times one of the common objections that people uh, claim with regard to not following Jesus is they say there's so much hypocrisy, there's so much disunity, so many Christians are at odds with each other, and and I would I would agree, like I'm not going to deny that, absolutely. There's a lot of disunity amongst Christians. There's a lot of things that reasons Christians fight and bicker and argue over all sorts of superfluous, ridiculous, redundant things. But there's one thing I would claim that every person that names the name of Jesus, every person that claims to follow Jesus. Across the board, I don't care what flavor, what system, what state, what culture, what color of your skin. Everyone that names the name of Jesus universally has believed this and affirmed this Apostles' Creed. So the way that we're going to do this, hopefully, can you guys all read that? Can you guys read that? Okay. Kind of? All right. What we're going to do, good. I saw someone shake their head in the far back, so good job. If you can't read it, then just go ahead. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have you guys stand up in just a moment. Just a moment. And what way that we do this is kind of like a call and response. So I'm going to read the emboldened uh, words. Uh, that I'll, I'll read that, and that will be kind of the call. And then the response will be we will all read the italicized passages together. We'll all read it nice and loud. Now, here's the other thing that's really important, okay? So I don't have it highlighted on here, but there are two that I'll just tell you. Um, in the very middle where it says he descended in the grave, and on the third day he rose again, the punctuation there that's what i'm looking for so it's punctuated the punctuation there is an exclamation mark so we're gonna we're gonna do the exclamation mark with with exclamation all right right and so that's that's the one right there and then also the very last one where it says amen so there's two of them you guys understand that 
We're going to do it loud. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He descended in the grave. He ascended into heaven. He will come again. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the communion of the saints. And I believe in the resurrection of the body. World. Amen. It's what we believe. It's what we confess. I always love telling the guys, we don't create the faith. We confess the faith. The big difference there. Our job is not to be innovators. How can we make Christianity cool? We don't care about that. We confess the faith. We've been given something. And we want to treasure that and pass it along. So, you guys take out your little candle. I saw some of you guys already lit it, so it's cool. We love you. We love you still. All right, turn the lights off. Turn your little lights on. Let them shine brightly. In years past, by the way, we've, we've, uh, we've done actual real fire. We don't want to cause panic attacks with anybody, so that's why we do these little LED things. So okay, go ahead, light those up. And we're going to sing this last song. But as we enter into this, I just want you to, as we sing this, maybe look around and think. Here's what I want you to think about. Jesus came into this world as a light, a light that touches people's lives. And then that light that touches people's lives, their lives get enlightened by grace and truth, transformed, changed, new people, new creation, to then go out into the world, into the dark, into the darkness. Christians should never avoid darkness. Most Christians do this. They're like, I got to avoid all the darkness. I understand kind of what that means, but really at the end of the day, Christians are called to descend into the darkness like Jesus descended in this world. It's a mission. We have a mission. You and I have a mission to be bright lights in this world. So as we sing this song, let's just consider the words carefully and worship Jesus. Right. Mm-hmm.
One of the things I love about Christmas is the time to celebrate. We're going to actually end on a celebratory note, but before we jump into singing once again, just joy to the joy to the world, just proclaiming that. Um, because God's posture towards us is one of grace and truth, that frees us to have our posture towards him be one of vulnerability and say, God, take all my life. If you're here this evening and you're a Christian, you know what that means already. You've already just trusted yourself. Say, God, take all of me, all that I am, take all of me. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, or maybe the Christian faith has been one that's been caused pain or hurt or questions throughout your life, or maybe it's there's some sentimentality to it, but at the end of the day, the story has never really just effectively hit you maybe the way that God has used it to hit you tonight. My hope would be that all you got to do is just create a posture in your heart to turn to him to say, Jesus, receive me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I want my life to make sense in your life. Just trust him. Ask him to wash you, to cleanse you. And he will make your life new.